0: Creativity is hard to define, but it's considered an essential skill in the knowledge workforce today. It helps us solve existing challenges and envision new opportunities. But as the pace of work and connectivity increases, how do we create the space we need to come up with our best ideas? Can we be creative and productive at the same time? And how do we keep that creative spark lit when we're starting to feel drained? I'm Kendall Kazor, part of Google's People Development Team, host for this season of the Resilience at Google podcast, where we pair neuroscientists and psychologists with mental performance coaches to uncover the science behind resilience and help us put into practice tips and strategies to respond to change and the daily challenges that come our way. In this episode, Dr. Lauren Witt leads a conversation about recharging herself while maximizing your creativity during times of stress and transition. Lauren spoke with Rahaf Harfouche, a digital anthropologist, researcher, and professor at Science Po in Paris. She's the best-selling author of the book Hustle and Float, Reclaim your creativity
1: and thrive in a world obsessed with work. We are so obsessed with that 25% of visible performance because we define productivity systems as continuous visible output. There's actually all these invisible steps that we never account for, which is why when you ask people, where do you get your best ideas? Nobody ever says, oh, after I was in front of my screen for 16 hours.
0: Alongside Rahoff was Mustafa Sarkar, a professor of sport and performance psychology at Nottingham Trent University in the UK, who focuses on wellness and resilience among high performers.
2: We think we need to rest and recover when we are 5% battery, but we'd probably start charging our phone when it's about 30%. So why is it the case that we do that with our phones, but we don't do that as humans?
0: This is episode one of season two, Rethinking Productivity.
3: Rahaf, the interesting thing that I always love to start with is what is it that we do? You're an author, you're a professor in Paris, you're also a digital anthropologist What does that mean? What is a digital anthropologist? And how do you spend your time? What is it that you do?
1: I try to understand how technology influences culture and society and communities. So it's everything from how is technology changing the way that we run teams or the way that we schedule our day to enabling people to share belief systems or create alternate versions of reality or build relationships across oceans. I love seeing how technology connects people and how it makes us more human and amplifies the best and the worst parts of us. I find it just endlessly fascinating.
3: Mustafa, you're a professor. You focus on performance excellence. You focus on team resilience. What does that mean in your world?
2: I'm really interested in the the psychology of high achievers, specifically around understanding how high achievers thrive on pressure and how they sustain not only their success, but also how they sustain their well being over a period of time. And within this area of performance excellence, I'm really interested in resilience, not just individually, but also at the team and organizational levels as well.
3: I so appreciate both of you being here today. We want to be our best. That's what we're all striving to do. And so I want to talk about that today and really look at it through the lens of what can Googlers put into action. We're a very action oriented group and we'll be sharing this message with the world as well. Rahaf, I want to just start with your book, Hustle and Float. What does that mean, and where did that concept come from for you beginning your research?
1: So Hustle Afloat is the result of a three-year research experiment that I did after I experienced my own burnout, because I would consider myself to be a high performer, and uh, my health and my mental well-being suffered so much. So I was trying to figure out from a research perspective what I was seeing, and then I, I had lunch with a friend of mine and his dad, and his dad is a river guide who takes people on whitewater rafting trips, I was explaining to him the concept and he was like, oh, it's hustle and float. And I was like, what is that? And he said that on a whitewater rafting trip, a good trip, you need to have a mix of hustle and float. There's a period where you have to exert yourself to make the raft go where you want, to navigate, to go against the current, to move forward. But then there are also periods where you have to lift your oar out of the water and let the river do the work. And if you have too much of one or the other, it ruins your trip. Too much hustle, you get exhausted, you make mistakes, it ends up being dangerous. Too much float and it's boring and you don't end up going where you're going, you're at the mercy of the river. And so it was this idea that in order to successfully navigate, we had to balance between when we do the work and when the river does the work. When I looked at the lens of productivity culture, and productivity propaganda and hustle culture. I thought, well, we've become so accustomed to hustling that we no longer remember how to float.
3: I love that concept so much. There are times where we need to be productive. There are times where we need to be creative. There are times where we need to sprint and there's times when we need to rest and recover. And one of the concepts that really stuck out to me was this idea of a productive creative Can you tell us, what is a productive created and
1: what do they need to be successful in this work environment? Many people today that are what I call productive creatives, what most people would call knowledge workers, They are economically reliant on their abilities to be creative, which is not drawing or singing. It's problem solving, collaborating, researching, organizing, managing, leading, anything that uses your cognitive mental abilities to solve problems or do something different depends on your creativity. And I was trying to understand why burnout was so on the rise, why it was such a problem, despite the fact that we have organizations and economies that depend on a very specific type of labor, non-standardized, changing all the time, creative, ambiguous, complicated, collaborative. And what I found is that we have an entire economy that is built for a very specific type of human work, but the systems that we have in place to measure their performance and to help them accomplish that work is based on outdated legacy systems that actually hurts them more than helps them. Productive creatives, who are people that need to use their creativity for their jobs, are actually being placed in corporate systems, in cultural systems of performance that are undermining the resources, the energy that they need to constantly replenish in pursuit of this like constant hustle. Understanding that we play a pivotal role in the knowledge economy, and yet we are at the mercy of assumptions made about work that were put into place like 150 years ago and that are now actively working against us is the first step in like liberating ourselves from this very oppressive heavy history of work
3: it's fascinating ray because we have all of these historical things in play in us that sort of drive and impact our behavior whether it's environmental or individual and Personally, I'm curious about this word creative, because a lot of people, they want to be innovative, they want to be influential, they want to be productive, but it's a harder terminology to get comfortable with. As you've gone into your research,
1: how is the corporate world responding to this word creative? What I'm seeing is that a lot of people have different ideas to what that word means for them. But innovation is essentially the marriage of productivity and creativity, right? It is to create something that generates some sort of economic benefit. And so when companies say they want to be innovative, well, you can't actually be innovative without being creative. There were studies um, that I mentioned in my book where CEOs and leaders of organizations ranked creativity as like the most important thing. And so now you're starting to see all these books being written about creative leadership. And our society in general is just obsessed with creatives. I mean, I talk about it in Hustle and Float about these like work heroes, you know, Beyonce, Steve Jobs, like we have a long history of celebrating and putting creative people on pedestals, which is really fascinating because the average knowledge worker would actually not consider themselves to be a creative. And yet subconsciously, we have all been sort of conditioned to look at being creative as an aspirational goal, especially if you are a productive creative that has managed to make a lot of money doing what you do.
3: So often we need creativity to solve big problems and to navigate unusual situations. And so like that's a fundamental leadership capability that we all need. And Mustafa, when we talk about team resilience and we talk about managers and leaders and coaches, do you have any commentary around productive creatives and how that plays into team resilience?
2: So I think managers and leaders play a really crucial role. We know that from a team resilience point of view, team learning is absolutely vital when it comes to resilience. The ability of teams to be able to collectively be on the same wavelength, but also be able to respond collectively as a group to challenging or difficult situations. So to, to be able to come up with creative solutions to problems are, are really, really important to be done at that, at that group level. Teams need that space and time to be able to do that. And that's where I think managers and, and leaders play a really important role. That requires managers and leaders to be very intentional in terms of how they shape the environment. But I think the other aspect of of being creative, which I know Rahaf talks about, is also the time and the space to be able to do that. So I think for me, it's two aspects. It's the opportunity and the space, but it's also the time that's needed to be able to have that creative influence as well and, and to be able to generate those creative ideas.
3: And that's so true, right? We have to prioritize things and we have to like create space and time for them and... There's such a common misconception, we run into it consistently, that if I prioritize well-being or other creative things, it will come at the expense of productivity. Like if I prioritize this, then this daily task or this project or this deadline won't get met. But what about creativity and innovation connects these? How does focused work and detachment create that competitive advantage?
1: we are very much obsessed with the tangible part of the cycle which is you sitting at your desk doing the thing right the active visible doing of the thing but in reality in order to get to the stage where you're filling out the deck or finalizing the research or or, or presenting to the client 75% of that process was unseen the issue is we are so obsessed with that 25% of visible performance because We define productivity systems as continuous visible output that we have completely separated the fundamental aspect of the cycle, which gets us there. There's actually all these invisible steps that we never account for. So you cannot just do the last 25% all the time, which is why when you ask people, where do you get your best ideas? Nobody ever says, oh, after I was in front of my screen for 16 hours. They say, when I was out for a walk, when I was washing the dishes, when I was you know, taking a nap when I was on my commute home. This is because those invisible steps are still puttering around your brain. They just need an outlet. And so from a systems perspective, from a resiliency perspective, we are optimizing draining, getting drained as like an end state to be celebrated instead of treating our creative energies as a sustainable resource that needs to be renewed and replenished strategically.
2: I just want to build on the, on the idea of getting drained because I think it links to the analogy that I think is often used about the battery on your phone. We, we think we need to rest and recover um, when we are 5% battery, but we would never ever charge our phone at 5%. We'd probably start charging our phone when it's about 30%. So why is it the case that, you know if, it, if we, we do that with our phones, but we don't do that as, as humans,
1: Exactly to your point, a real creative cycle might be that you work for a certain period of time and take a little break, work and take a break, work and take a break Instead, now we think, no, we're gonna work nonstop all day and then recharge. I'm gonna recharge at night, I'm gonna recharge on the weekend and to your point, we wait until we're 5%, we wait until we're on empty instead of actually refueling on the way, which is a much more humane way of working.
2: The best athletes in the world do exactly what have mentioned there. they they don't work five days a week, seven days a week. And in a lot of cases, they actually work probably three or four days a week. And within a day, they're they're not training the whole nine to five. They're actually training probably for a couple of hours, then taking a little bit of a rest, then training again. We should actually take lessons from the realm of, of sport because I think there's a lot to be learned from the best athletes who have got this brilliant ability to switch on, but also to switch off.
1: That's exactly right, because we look at athletes through the corporate lens, and we see them in the playoffs, and we think that's how they are all the time. So we think we're going to go to the playoffs every single day for an entire year over and over again. And I talk about this on Hustle & Flow. There's a whole chapter called The Corporate Athlete, where literally people just think of themselves as Michael Jordan at the playoffs. Meanwhile, he's got off seasons and off days and, and all of these things. And I love this idea of using sport as an analogy, because I think like people just focus on that. 25% athleticism, and they forget the rest of the year that's being spent training and developing these skill sets.
2: The other thing in terms of that ability to switch on and switch off, it's not like a light switch where you switch it on and then you switch it off again. When we rest and recover, we'll take a holiday, we'll take a vacation. You then switch off and then you switch back on again, but you then get into that cycle. Rather than just seeing this kind of on-off switch, It's more like a dimmer switch. I think it's more like a a continuum where you're you're turning the dial down and then you turn the dial back up again, um, rather than just this black and white on and off.
3: So I'm curious. We see it in professional athletics. We see it in Olympic athletics. We see it in the highest performers in the world in a million different ways. We know it works. Why is it so hard to slow down and take a break even when we know our best ideas and our best performance moments come after the rest?
1: There's this myth and this lie that gets told that says your success is solely dependent on your ability to work hard. But in reality, as we now know, the success equation, as I call it, isn't just hard work. Yes, hard work is important. Obviously, it it moves the needle. But there's also where you're born, your gender, your family, your access to education, access to network, access to economic opportunities, luck, timing, all of those things also play a huge role in somebody's success. But we don't look at all of that. We turn to people and we have the audacity to tell them, you just need to wake up a bit earlier. That's why you're not successful. And so we internalize that and we think it's my fault. And if you think it's your fault, you're going to associate the fact that taking a rest means you're not deserving of your own success. And so if you don't start unlocking that story, no amount of advice will help because you have already created the link internally that any time not spent struggling and sacrificing, which is work devotion, right? Anytime you're not actively demonstrating to your colleagues, to your friends, to your family that you are working so hard then that is you signaling that you're not deserving of your own success.
2: In terms of Rahaf's point about work devotion, I think certainly from a Google point of view to think about the identity, what is the identity of a Googler? How do they behave? How do they operate? If you don't have multiple identities outside of being a Googler, if you don't consider yourself to be a mother, a father, a footballer, an exerciser, a cook, whatever that might be, if you just consider yourself to be a Googler, I think it will go back to what Rahaf said. All the advice that you can give is not going to make any difference because that's what you see yourself on a day-to-day basis. One of the things around rest and recovery is to do things outside of the work context. So I think for me, it's carving out multiple identities as an individual. You see being a Googler as an important part of your life, but you also see other aspects of your life being important as well. And that's not going to have an impact on your performance is actually going to improve it. And it's going to give you a more well-rounded development. I think for me, part of it is showing rather than telling. Uh, Showing by example, leading by example, and and then hopefully you see people moving along that way.
1: I mean, this is why you're seeing companies that are now implementing company-wide shutdowns for vacations, because people were not disconnecting. They were not taking their days. They were calling in even when they were supposed to be out. And so to have An organization, say, from a policy standpoint, the only way this is going to work, the only way you're not going to feel guilty if we're all out of the office at the same time. And that's a really interesting trend from a belief versus policy perspective, because increased vacation days weren't working because people were not taking them.
2: So rather than telling Googlers, you know, spend 15, 20 minutes in a day or take your annual leave, as a manager or leader, do that yourself. Lead by example. You're giving permission to the people that you're working with to do exactly the same. As an, I'll give you an example of my line manager. Every day, you'll see in her calendar one hour where she blocks out for tennis. And whenever someone tries to book a meeting with her in that time period, she doesn't allow that to happen. So she's telling everyone, that is my time for rest and recovery. I'm valuing that as, as a manager. And that suggests to me that I think you should value that as well. So she, she never ever told people to rest and recover, she just led by example.
3: We've taken that approach at Google um, with what we call our global reset days. And so it's sort of a day, a quarter that started during the COVID pandemic to be able to pause, to be able to rest and reset and to be able to seek out active or passive recovery, to be able to catch up on laundry or house chores or other things that didn't get done during the week because we are on a sprint. The interesting thing around high performers is that there's almost a badge of honor about how busy we are. But now we're in a place where we're exhausted and we're, we're feeling overworked and that requires a cultural shift. How do we change a culture of belief systems different than an individual's belief system around this topic?
2: If we go back to resilience, resilience is cultivated by design, not by default. Developing resilience is not gonna happen automatically. It's something as a leader or manager that you actively and proactively need to kind of focus on. I think changing the environment, changing culture is a lot harder and will take a lot longer, but I think you'll get far more sustained change over time. Whereas I think focusing on the individual, you might get some quick wins and you might get some short-term success, but it's unlikely to lead to sustained change over time. And and that's why for me, focusing on the environment is so important because you're getting to the root cause of certain things rather than just scratching the surface. In our work, when we talk about the environment, we talk about two key areas, challenge and support. And with leaders and managers, it's thinking about how do you provide that appropriate balance between challenge and support? And there's a little bit of a misconception that if you're challenging, you can't be supportive, and if you're supportive, you can't be challenging. But what we argue, actually, is you can do challenge and support together, and that will have an impact on performance, but it will also have an impact on, on well being and personal development. So I think this balance between challenge and support is really important in the environment. And then also, I know where, where Google have done a lot of work is around psychological safety, creating an environment where it is actually safe to speak up when you're seeing things which aren't particularly healthy. Uh, but also creating a platform where leaders and managers can hold up their hand and say, actually, I've made a mistake here or or acknowledge some of their fallibilities.
3: Rojav, are there ways that we can incentivize healthier approaches? Like, are there ways that we can sort of deconstruct the previous biases and stories that we tell to incentivize or encourage as managers
1: and leaders to sort of shift to that hustle and float culture? For me, I mean, look, Google is a data company. You are an experimenting company. So what I tell all my clients and and what you guys have already demonstrated in previous experiments is just experiment. Test this hypothesis out, right? And so the, instead of making big changes, I would say start doing these smaller experiments. Get the data. What the science has shown us is people will perform better when they're not sleep deprived, when they're not burning out, when they're not overstressed, when they're not Overextended. You will have better quality innovation, better strategic thinking, less mistakes, more out of the box thinking. Like all of the things that all these companies are saying they need their workforce to have in order for them to be able to adapt to this like constantly changing environment are things that need people who aren't being depleted at a rate that they can't recover from. To build on what Mustafa was saying earlier about the environment, that also means doing experiments and asking yourself, like, what does What does Google believe success looks like? Who are the stars in Google that are constantly getting rewarded? What behaviors are constantly getting held up as aspirational? What messages do our systems send? What do our performance measuring systems believe the ultimate definition of performance is?
3: What I hear you talking about is how do we establish new norms using data to navigate this almost a reset position for, for what's coming in the future. Are there keys to establishing those more effective team norms? And how should we be rethinking norms for the future based on the research that you've been doing?
1: So um, this is actually a really great topic because over the last two years, I've spent a lot of time working with organizations, rethinking you know, digital culture, team culture, because so much of organizational culture is invisible. A lot of the old management practices were based on control, right? I see you work, I see you be productive, I see you in front of me at the office, and those are all very outdated markers of performance. It's stuff that's just kind of passed on from person to person through behaviors and signaling and unspoken things. Now we're starting to see the things that were invisible being programmed into the technological tools that we're using. So for example, like, do we have our camera on?s what is the rate of response? What's the expectations of chatter? What's the expectations of availability? And so now moving forward, I think there's an opportunity now to start asking questions again, like, how do we want to measure performance? How can we stay connected? How can we build trust? How can we use psychological safety in virtual spaces with decentralized teams? And people don't understand, like, the, the granularity of some of these things. Go to your team, go to the colleagues you most frequently connect with and just ask them, what is your expectation in terms of an acceptable response time for somebody to get back to you on a digital communication email or message? And just look at the variety of answers that you get from one group of people. Somebody will say 10 minutes, somebody will say one business day, somebody will say four hours. And the point is, if you have five people on a team and those five people each have different expectations of what an appropriate window of responsiveness is, and now they're decentralized and they're working remotely, you can really easily start to see how misunderstandings and tension and assumptions and a lack of of clearly communicated expectations can add friction because our digital communications are also an extension of our own belief systems. And you realize it just goes back to basics. The best practice is making the invisible visible. So instead of seeing your colleague at their desk, you might have a check-in you know, once a week or a very specific way to update people on your progress. It's things that we normally used to take for granted that are getting digitized, but if they're not anchored in digital culture, if it's not actually anchored in values, then you're just spreading your outdated belief systems into the technology that you're using.
2: I think particularly now moving into the hybrid aspect, we've lost that sense of connection to some extent with one another. And I I think that team norms is something that's gonna evolve. And actually the involvement of those team norms are really, really important. So I think as managers and leaders, you don't wanna create an environment where you're checking on people. You wanna create the environment where you're checking in with people. But I think that connection, that that check-in, that regular touch point, I think will help with those team norms development.
3: Google leaders and managers, they ask us a lot of questions around performance and how to help their team and how to build team resilience. And one of the top questions that's been coming in lately is, what can I do now to increase my team's productivity
2: and resilience? For me, team resilience boils fundamentally down to relationships and and cultivating those relationships, particularly with, with, with COVID. I think that that cultivation of relationships for team resilience is so important. I've heard someone say this before, that strangers can't team. We're in an environment now where we don't actually know our team members. Yes, we'll know their names. We might know a little bit about their family. We might know a little bit about their hobbies. But fundamentally, it's understanding people as humans, how they operate what are their values and beliefs to ultimately help them to then better collectively respond to to stress and pressure.
1: Yeah. I mean, I absolutely agree. What I would add to that productivity in and of itself is just a reflection of a system. It can be anything that you want. If you want to increase your team's productivity, let's specify what the conditions are that you're trying to increase. Are you trying to increase more periods of deep work, right? Are you trying to increase more periods of intense collaboration? Are you trying to say less distractions? Are you trying to say, I want to give people the opportunity to think and absorb and process to be able to come up with strategic ideas? But if you have a manager that says, I want to improve my team's ability and the amount of time they can spend in uninterrupted, undistracted, deep work, the decision that that manager is going to take in terms of, what to implement on a norms level is going to be very different from somebody who just believes that I want my team to be available all the time. Like those are two different norms. It'll improve productivity, but how you measure that productivity is going to be totally different. Now, the other thing, and this is a personal thing, this is a half thing, but one idea that I have been really thinking about over the last couple of years is the concept of anti-fragility. The world is changing. I don't want to just survive all these disruptions. I want to use those disruptions to grow and to be made better. So like I'm constantly asking myself on a strategic level, how can I thrive in disorder? How can I benefit from disorder? So 2022 still up in the air. How can I really hit my goals and succeed because of how 2022 is not in spite of it, Strategic thinkers, like, we're going to need to be adaptive. We're going to need to be responsive. We're going to need to be growing and learning and challenging assumptions and evolving. And all of those things require a different relationship with disruption and change. Just surviving is no longer good enough. And so to do that, I think we really need to get to know ourselves, get to know our creativity, get to know our energy, get to know our limits, what what replenishes us, what drains us. Your talent pool is so smart Give them the ability to use their imagination to build the system for them.
3: At Google, we talk about resilience really as your ability to respond to and recover from stress. And then there are all these stressful moments that may come up in sort of a global or political or pandemic setting, but it also can be that stress from a ping or an email or a project deadline that shifts. and And how do we how do we sort of be able to bounce back from those things with recovery as a core part of it? One final quick question is, what is a silver lining that has come from remote work that we should be intentional to keep or modify
1: as a norm moving forward? For me, it was just, it showed that it was possible to give people a level of flexibility. And that flexibility will look different depending on the company and the team. But so many companies were so resistant to this idea before And it really forced them to be like, no, it's possible to have teams distributed. It's possible to work remotely. It's possible to do all of those things. And I also think in the same breath, it also reinforced our need to physically be together in some shape and way form too. So it really also made the case that intentional gathering community and culture builds good connection that can then allow people to be flexible and work from wherever and build a work life that supports their personal life and their goals.
2: In terms of the silver lining, I think it showed people that you can incorporate rest and recovery on a daily basis. It's not just something that you do before work and it's not just something that you do after work, it's something that you can actually do in between. I think the other thing, certainly in the sporting world, it showed people the benefits of slowing down. I think a lot of coaches that I've spoken to have said that as a result of the pandemic, we're not going 24 seven anymore. And as long as people learn from that experience going forward, I think that is another potential uh, silver lining as well. It's it's it showed people the benefits of slowing down.
3: I appreciate that. There's a lot of benefit in in slowing down and uh, balancing that with the sprint mentality of being productive. So Rahaf and Mustafa, thank you for joining me today. I really enjoyed this conversation. I'm excited to take some of these practical applications and. And put them into action very soon. Thank you so much, Lauren.
2: It's been a, a massive pleasure to do this with you.
0: Thank you for listening to Resilience at Google. To learn more about how to rethink your productivity, you can read Rahaf's book, Hustle and Float, and you can find the links that we mentioned in this episode to follow Rahaf and Mustafa's work by visiting our show notes. Until our next episode. We hope that what we've just learned gives you the ideas and the tools to meet the moments that matter the most to you. This has been a production by Google's People Development Team. A special thank you to our People Innovation Lab, or PILab, led by Iowa Shiroko for providing us with the data to inform this conversation. And we'd like to thank our partners over at Long Story Short Media, executive producers Jessica Stewart and Bob Yule, producers Emily Russell and Josh Hall, and editor Andy Strassel for producing this podcast recorded remotely on Google Meet. If you are interested in other conversations hosted by Google, check out our Talks at Google podcast, where great minds meet. Talks at Google brings the world's most influential thinkers, creators, makers, and doers all to one place and can be found wherever you find your favorite shows.